Today my guest is Radhika Dutt. Radhika is the author of Radical Product Thinking, the new mindset for innovating smarter, which has been translated into several languages. She's an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in five acquisitions, two of which were companies that she founded. She advises organizations from high-tech startups to government agencies on building radical products and create a fundamental change. Radhika has built products in a wide range of industries, including broadcast, media, telecom, advertising technology, government, consumer apps, robotics, and even wine. Welcome back, Radhika. <laughs> Welcome back Thank to you. the podcast. Thank you for having me again. And you it's are, great to uh, see you again. Returning champion. <laughs> and I'm very happy to have you here again. So um, Thank you. making a small intro to our last conversation, um, we have explored uh, your extensive career, your experience as a founder, as a lecturer in the university, and also in all the different products that you have built. Uh, and we have also talked about the radical product thinking framework um, and the, how can people use this framework to build better products. And this time, I would like to start our conversation by doing a continuation of uh, our last conversation and go back to the radical product thinking, but now addressing the topic uh, specifically of OKRs and how can then arm the organization and what radical product thinking framework has to do with all of this. <laughs> so Excellent. maybe let's start by the basics. What are OKRs? Ah, it's an approach that was popularized by Google, um, although it's existed before that. But the idea was popularized after Google. Uh, and the concept is, you know, it, it's a way of uh, helping organizations uh, describe the narrative of the impact that they want to have. That's really, that was the goal of OKRs. And so the idea was that we describe what we want to achieve Uh, and that's the objective. And the key result is basically, you know, what is the metric that we will measure whether we're achieving that objective or not? And so an example would be something like, you know, targeting the enterprise segment. Uh, and the key result might be, you know, getting 10 new customers in this enterprise segment, uh, each of which is over, you know, $50,000 account. As you describe it, seems... Seems good. <laughs> seems like a good approach. Seems reasonable, right? Seems exactly. reasonable, yes. So what are the, the problems that uh, you identified as uh, possibly uh, arming the, the organization? Yeah, so let's start a little bit. Uh, let's take a step back and talk about goal setting in general, actually. You know, for us, I think, for as long as we've ever heard about goals, we've always learned that goals And goal setting is how you achieve things, that mm -hmm. that is what leads to greatness, you know, when you set big goals and then you achieve them, right? But the reality is that time and time again, it's been shown that it's not goals that actually help you achieve something. Uh, so let's talk more about that. You know, there's actually the book Atomic Habits by James Clear, where he talks about how, you know, every Olympian sets goals, uh, every athlete has goals, right? But it's not the goals that actually set apart the winners from the losers, right? It's not about the goals. What he talks about is we need systems and processes for us to be able to achieve what we want to. And that's what the whole Atomic Habits book is about. But let's 
so that's him saying it, but you know, there have other, there've been other people who have said something very similar and there's been extensive body of research actually about goal setting. Um, and one paper in particular is something that's truly a must read. Uh, and maybe at the end of this, you know, we can share a link to that, but there is a paper that was written by joint professors and was a cross university paper, uh, universities, including Harvard, Wharton, um, and others, uh, University of Arizona, they all wrote this paper together saying that goal setting should come with a list of side effects and uh, it should be prescribed really carefully. What their research has shown is that goal setting works when you have a repetitive process uh, or, you know, uh, something that you're doing that doesn't have complexity in terms of what is the right answer. So, for example, if what you're working on is stuffing envelopes and it's a matter of, you know, stuffing 50 envelopes per, uh, you know, half hour or stuffing 100 envelopes uh, every half hour, you know, that is a repetitive process where you're doing the same thing over and over. And for you know, getting somebody to be motivated and do better, goal setting works in that case. It works also in terms of exercise where, you know, you've been told this is the set of exercises that you do. We can do goal setting. Okay. Do these exercises for this number of minutes. And then, you know, uh, you achieve this and then you do this. Like that sort of goal setting actually works. What they found does not work is if you hand someone a problem that's complex, that's, let's say, a puzzle that you have to solve. When you set goals and targets for solving a hard problem where there's no obvious right answer, goal setting actually uh, leads to worse performance. Hmm. So they found this research and they were not the first ones. <laughs> this has been shown over and over. So then the question is, okay, so this research exists and yet why are we still doing goal setting for problems like strategy, for sales, where there isn't an obvious right answer in terms of what's the right approach to selling? What's the right approach to our strategy? Will this work or not? When there are all these unknowns, why do we still set targets? Like, why is that seen as the right way to motivate? And the answer to this, right, lies in the fact that when something seems really intuitive to us, when something seems like we are very sure that this is how it works, then any research that shows the contrary, we're very unwilling to accept. And this has been shown over time and time again. So I'll give you an example. You know, back when cholera was a big deal and cholera was widespread in London and people were dying from it, a lot of the leading scientists at the time thought that cholera was being spread by bad smells or like miasma is what they call it. There was this whole miasma theory where all this stuff in the air is uh, spreading cholera. And so they were afraid that a lot of the cesspools where sewage was being accumulated was what was leading to cholera. And so what did they do to solve cholera? they let out all of these cesspools into the River Thames. <laughs> and so that led to the second outbreak of cholera where like 14,000 people died. And there was an epidemiologist who actually traced the outbreak of cholera to certain water pumps. And he showed that people who were getting water from this pump, they were all getting infected with cholera. 
And so he scientifically proved that, you know, using control groups and others that look, this is waterborne as a disease. And so we need to boil water. And yet it took 12 years after that for other scientists to accept this when Mm -hmm. there was such clear evidence, right? Why? Because everyone was so sure that it was miasma that was causing cholera. So now let's come back to goal setting. The exact same thing is happening with goal setting. There's research that is very clearly showing evidence that goal setting does not work for hard problems where there isn't an obvious answer. And yet, you know, we keep going after the same thing. And Google has shown that, oh, you know, well, this works for us. But the reality is, right, there's even Google's senior officers who have said, actually, that they've been seeing side effects to OKRs. And so it isn't obvious that it's even working for Google. And yet it's because goal setting is part of our intuition that this is how we achieve things, that we keep doing it. To summarize what you said in the very few words, Goal setting is good uh, when you are thinking about uh, a list of to-dos. So this afternoon I'm going to do this, this and that, but it's not good to uh, solve a complex problem. But why? What happens when we do an OKR for a very complex problem? What are the problems that we see arising from this behavior? Yeah, so let's talk about a few examples of problems that we see, right? The first problem is that it often restricts or curbs innovation. And I'll give you an example. You know, even when you have a really motivated team, what happens with OKRs is you often have uh, teams then that start to do sandbagging is what we call it, where they say, oh, I can't commit to these high goals. And the whole point of OKRs is you're supposed to set all these really hard to achieve goals, right? But even teams that are motivated will say, look, I can't, I can't say that I can achieve this. And then they're told, oh, don't worry about it. This is supposed to be hard to achieve. But it turns out to be bad for two reasons. One is, it makes people feel like this is the exam that I have to pass. And it's a very public failure or success of achieving those, right? So it's very high risk. So if I care about showing that I've done well, then I necessarily want to sandbag some of these goals and make sure that I can achieve them, right? And so in terms of innovation, it actually curbs your ability or or motivation to show that I'm achieving this because it's like setting an end of the year exam. Mm -hmm. The second thing, right, is we've all heard this quote, lies, lies, and statistics. (laughs) When I think about product people, all of us hold these cards in our hands where we know the metrics for our products, right? We know the real stats for our products. When you set metrics and goals for, or targets that need to be achieved, um, then what one's tendency is, is to show that we have achieved those targets, right? Like that's of course what the exam is. Of course, I'm going to try to show that, yes, we've achieved these targets. You're not going to really be open to showing that actually this approach is not working, right? What I want to show is some stats to show that what we've said is working, as opposed to saying, actually, what we're doing isn't working. And what you want from a team is honesty in terms of collaboration mm-hmm. in saying, okay, we're trying this and we're trying this. 
This is working. This is not. What do we do differently? You want a collaborative approach in terms of both trying things, talking openly about what's not working, and then talking about where we'll course correct. The moment you set a final exam and a set of targets for your product where you say, we need to achieve this, this, and this, anyone who has stats for their product is going to, instead of showing what is not working, you're going to sweep that under the rug and you're going to show what is working. And that's Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that we want to avoid. And this is also what research shows, by the way, that this doesn't always lead to good learning behavior. And what we want, like what really leads to better innovation is learning behavior as a team. Yeah. So if you want to decrease the number of people that uh, churn in your product, one of the strategies can be make the cancellation process horrible. And so it leads to bad strategies, uh, let's say. If people feel that they are being uh, pushed uh, on a corner and they have no e- exit out, but they still want to pass in that official exam. In- yes. I want to delve into that point a little bit more. What you said is exactly true, right? Like we often can set goals and then it leads to really perverse incentives. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'll talk about some other real life examples of that happening. But one very not even insidious example Um, or insidious, it's not even an insidious consequence, but just what naturally happens is that we all take different interpretations of this goal. So let's look at this example of an OKR that I shared, you know, of we have to win these 10 enterprise accounts. So when you have a goal like that, right, an OKR, what ends up happening is the salesperson might look at this OKR and say, okay, I'm going to sell anything I can to be able to achieve that. I might have to sell custom features, features that we don't have yet, but I will sell whatever I need to, to be able to achieve that. Mm -hmm. To the marketing person, this might mean that, well, I might have to go after a whole range of personas that perhaps, you know, the OKR says enterprise segments, but I'll go after enterprise segments in different industries. And so now you're going to have a spread out message in marketing. And for that product person, they might be saying, okay, my OKR was perhaps about like increasing conversions to premium products, but now I have a whole bunch of custom features coming in from sales. And now I have this conflict between these different OKRs that I'm trying to fulfill. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I will do what I'm measured by (laughs) as opposed to what the salespeople are being measured by. Or there's all this conflict that is created. So one of the things that what you just alluded to in terms of these perverse incentives that happen, right, is when you set OKRs, it often means that it creates the motivation in a company to drive fast. But going fast means we can all be going fast, but in slightly different directions. And what OKRs often mask is, yes, we are creating this um, narrative about what's the impact we want to have, like 10 new enterprise accounts, but that the reason we're providing this narrative of impact in the form of goals is because of an underlying deficit that we are not acknowledging. Often that underlying deficit is this lack of clarity in terms of both a vision and strategy. And when we aren't clear on vision and strategy, we kind Mm -hmm. of use OKRs as duct tape or band-aids over cracks, right? Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) using duct tapes or band-aids over cracks is never the answer. It's not a solution to those cracks. Those cracks still exist. What you really actually need in this case 
is clarity of vision and strategy that truly aligns your team. And then how you measure success. That's what I'm advocating for. I'm not saying that you shouldn't be measuring. The measurement part is super important, but what you measure should be derived from vision and strategy. It's not arbitrary OKRs and goals that you set. That's the key to this. Exactly. And you also highlighted uh, a different point that is uh, when you have OKRs per team and they are uh, pointing in different directions. So like in the case that salesperson are measured based on their sales performance. And let's imagine that the product just launched um, a new product that needs to be uh, sold, uh, but the, that's a very difficult product to start selling because it's new and it implies that the sales teams will need to um, put time on it. So maybe they will be pushed to continue selling the old one and the other one is just left there. And uh, But then product is, is mad at them. So... But so my point is, in that case, that's when you try to mask a lack of vision with each team having an OKR, and then everyone is going multiple ways and not an arrow straight uh, towards the, the vision. Exactly. But to which, right, some of our listeners might say, okay, well, then the answer is don't set OKRs per team, but you set OKRs at the company level. So why not do that then? Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the answers to that is when you set these OKRs, even at an organizational level, you either the answer is then you're setting things that are either too high level or it's too detailed. And yes, you might say, okay, you know, maybe it's exactly the right balance and I, I hit the exact sweet spot. But let's say you miss, like, let's say you set goals that aren't exactly right or you're not at an organizational level that they're not quite right. So, well, what happens then? The reality is, right, when you set OKRs at the beginning of the year, that whole process of getting everyone to buy into OKRs, etc., it is so, so darn painful <laughs> that you will not hear anyone on this call say, yes, Let's just, you know, change our OKRs six months later if we decide that that's the wrong OKR. People say that in theory, that yes, we'll just change OKRs if it turns out to not be the right OKR. But the reality is nobody actually ever goes back and changes those OKRs because setting those OKRs was so damn hard in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so the reality is we end up setting OKRs and then we keep pursuing those OKRs for the rest of the year, even when we know that those were the wrong OKRs to yes. begin with. And this is why actually even companies like Spotify have said that they do not do OKRs because once you set them, it was really hard to change them, right? This is why instead of OKRs and one-time goal setting, what I advocate for is continuous measurement those measurements are derived from vision and strategy and you continuously monitor and talk about whether it's working or not. So it's not one time OKR setting in the year. It's actually continuous measurement. And that's, it, it's actually more honest to yourself. It takes effort, but it leads to better results and more collaborative results and collaborative mm -hmm. innovation. Exactly. So in that case, you would uh, remove the O from OKRs and just keep the key results that you measure, but we don't have uh, an objective uh, that you need to achieve by the end of the year, which is this final exam. 
Yeah, so let me, uh, so let's talk about a very specific example. So for example, instead of uh, a target that uh, reads like, you know, reaching 2000 signups by X date. Now that is a target. I would not set a target like that because you don't know what is the right target and whether signups is the right measurement to be measuring. What I would say is a hypothesis that would read like this. If we do XYZ in our product, then we expect to see more signups because, um, you know, and what is the, what is the connection? So perhaps let's say, um, I have made the sign up button more obvious and, um, I've put, I've done something that makes signups really uh, front and center in the product. So then I can say, if I've done this, then people are more likely to sign up because this is more, uh, uh, this is, uh, let's say, a gating step towards content that they really want to get. So now that's the connection that I've described, right? So now I can actually test whether I'm getting more signups. If I'm not getting more signups, this connection either between what I, this experiment that I tried and signups wasn't working or my experiment basically of making the signups more front and center wasn't working, right? Like there's a very clear hypothesis that I'm now testing mm -hmm. and it's a collaborative process because it's not a matter of a certain number of signups. We can all talk about, okay, we've tried to get more signups. This was the experiment. This experiment is not working. What will we alter? And now we have a collaborative approach in terms of what is our next iteration to be able to test mm -hmm. again. That's the approach that I'm advocating for, that we're continuously measuring and continuously improving. Exactly. And you you see that approach of hypothesis testing um, on a company level or uh, on, uh, on a product engineering design level or, or both? It really is at a both company level and at a product level. It's a mindset and a way of thinking, right? Uh, so at a company level, the way I would approach it is having regular strategy meetings. Very often in companies, this concept of a regular strategy meeting is often just absent. Um, and every time I was working in a strategy role in an organization, we started instituting like a monthly strategy meeting at the very least, right? Like sometimes in the early stages, it was every two weeks because your pace of learning is that fast. But otherwise, it's a monthly strategy meeting to talk about what experiments we're trying, what is working or not working, what are we going to try next? Like what are we observing in the market, etc. Mm -hmm. This sort of a discussion becomes more collaborative and the more collaborative this testing and trying things is working across functions, the less you need goals. It becomes, as James Clear said in Atomic Habits, right? You start to set up a whole system uh, and a set of habits that help you continuously do better and course correct. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. But um, so going back, uh, doing a step back, first of all, you'll need a good vision and strategy for the product. Exactly. And that part, I cannot emphasize more, right? Um, I think let's start with the topic of vision. There is this great man fallacy that exists, right? Where this great man fallacy in history was that 
You know, behind every great historical event was one great man. And let's face it, right? <laughs> it was always a great man, hardly ever thought of as a woman. But that, that idea still persists today where people think that there is one great man who has great vision and everyone is, uh, everyone is just following that vision. Uh, and that's how, you know, greatness comes about and some, uh, some big, you know, company comes about as a result of that. And if we break that down, that is not true at all. Um, and I give the example of the moon landing in the book where, you know, if we look at the moon landing, uh, putting man on the moon was JFK's vision. But if we think about all the components that went into it, uh, you know, there was the software piece, there was the mechanical engineering piece, the material science aspect. Every single group had to have a clear vision for what putting man on the moon actually meant. Um, and I interviewed Ma Margaret Hamilton, who headed up software for the mission to the moon, right? And at the time, software engineering didn't even exist as a concept. It was just called programming. Uh, and, mm -hmm. you know, at the time, like she had to come up with a vision for what software engineering meant. And she coined this term software engineering because the idea was that we need this form of engineering so that software always recovers from every possible error. And so that was her vision that made the whole moon landing come alive. Right? Uh, and her vision meant that there was actually a failure at the last moment and software actually recovered from that. Uh, and NASA was able to give the go, no go decision. And they were able to land on, on the moon because software is able to recover. And so coming back to vision, what we need is clarity in terms of a vision. So not this big vision of, you know, to be the leader in blah, blah. Like Boeing has this vision of to be the leader in aerospace and look at the crappy products that they've put out actually, right? And we can actually say crappy products because we have evidence of that with the Boeing 737 MAX. Um, and unfortunately it's a crappy product, right? And so the question is like, we know that a vision like to be the leader in aerospace doesn't work. And what we need to acknowledge is that we need a detailed vision that says, what exactly is the problem? Like, it's not about being the leader because being the leader can be more revenues. It could be shareholder returns. It could be market share. It could be anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so the question is, whose problem are you solving? Like, what's the group of users? What exactly is their problem? Why does it need solving? Because maybe it doesn't. Then you can say, what's the world we envision and how will we bring it about? And so in the radical product thinking approach, we have a fill in the blank statement where you answer these questions in a format that helps you actually focus on these hard questions. And let's face it, they are hard questions to answer because at every point you have a choice to make, like in terms of whose problem are you solving? as Boeing, am I solving a problem for shareholders? Am I solving it for my customers like um, uh, like American Airlines? Or am I solving this problem for the end users who sit on the plane? And those are the kinds of questions you have to answer. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of focusing on wordsmithing, you focus on aligning a whole team uh, on these questions. And so you can look up the uh, radical product thinking vision format, uh, and we can talk about where to find that at the end, but it's in the book and it's in the free toolkit as well.
Mm-hmm. Exactly. And from that vision that answers those um, questions that you just said, it then comes the small visions for each team or each department that uh, based on the, this bigger goal, they need to uh, make their own vision. Like um, there was that it was needed the creation of software engineering to achieve the bigger vision of uh, putting men on the moon. Each team then needs to define their own. Yes, exactly. And that to me is the key to strategic planning. Um, and the visual I like to give people is, you know, if you can think about champagne glasses that are all stacked like a pyramid, you know, vision should cascade like champagne being poured through those glasses, right? Mm-hmm. Where it pours from one glass into the next. So from top level all the way to the individual contributors, the vision like champagne sort of cascades uh, top down. Exactly. Yes. What I think... Um people might uh, that are hearing this might think is that if I don't have an objective and key results, so if I don't have an objective that the big test for my team, uh, maybe people won't um, feel enough motivated or do the big thing to, to, to get there. Exactly. There is always this fear that motivation comes from external goals, right? And I think that is, again, such um, uh, this intuitive fear that we have that motivation comes externally. But if we think about where motivation comes from, um, I love the book Drive by Daniel Pink. um, And it talks about where does motivation come from and how do we inspire our teams And he talks about three factors uh, in terms of what inspires teams, right? And it's never external motivators that gets people really going. What inspires people most is the internal motivation. Like always greatness has been achieved because we're driven internally, not because someone said that they'll give you something because you achieve something, right? And so the three things that he talks about that drives motivation in people, number one is the shared purpose. And when I just talked about vision in this way, where we talk about whose problem are we solving? What is the problem? Why does it need solving in this world? That shared purpose is more motivating than any OKR or target that we can set for people. So that's number one. The second thing that leads to internal motivation is feeling like you have autonomy in this world, right? Where It's not just someone telling you and micromanaging you and telling you what you need to do, but rather someone has this vision and you have some level of autonomy in being able to translate that into what it means for your work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this has been even shown in terms of studies that show that people's health improves when they have autonomy, even if they have the most stressful job. Right, where they feel like they have some control over how to execute, even if it's stressful, that gives them motivation and helps them get over it. And what I mean by this autonomy, right? Uh, let's look at this moon landing example that, yes, it's man landing on the moon, but Margaret Hamilton had autonomy in terms of what that meant for software and how to translate that into her vision, right? Like she was able to create this view within NASA Um, And and this philosophy that NASA allowed her to apply everywhere. And this was a new way of thinking about software, this concept that 
software needs to be able to recover from every possible error that happens. That was a whole, this, this whole concept of defensive programming was something that was new that she brought into NASA, right? And so that mm -hmm. sort of autonomy that you have in terms of what does man on the moon translate into in terms of your vision, that you need for internal motivation. And the last thing in terms of internal motivation that Daniel Pink describes in his book, Drive, is this concept of mastery, feeling like you're continuously getting better at something, that you're improving. Uh, and part of that is also improving as a whole team, that you're achieving something, you know, so getting better both in terms of what you're doing and that you're getting better at it and achieving mastery, but as well as achieving mastery as a team working together, you're gelling as a team, things are looking up that, you know, you are achieving something together, right? Yes. All of that comes from communication, from psychological safety, creating a culture of innovation. So absolutely none of those factors come externally in the form of targets that you have to achieve. That is really our own fallacy that is come up from years and years of sometimes even parental mistakes, right? Do this and I'll give you this. And also I'm, I'm remembering like uh, a common um, question that they sometimes do in companies to measure uh, employee satisfaction is, do you have a best friend at work? Yeah. Which is uh, like an indicator of how, how motivated you you can or should be uh, if you have that relationship. So. That's such a good point. Yeah. I think such an interesting connection you made there. It's so true, right? Because mm -hmm. I think so much of that motivation comes internally and part of that is the connections. And that's the third part of the team, the mastery as a team. You are, we are reaching to, to the end of our conversation. Um, I would like to ask you that uh, you have just referred the book and I'd like to ask you if you have any book recommendations that you suggest can be product or non-product. Oh, I do have a few book recommendations. I first want to share the premise that I feel like so many people in product, they consume so many product books, but I think what we really need is, you know, both divergent and convergent thinking. Um, so we need to not just always think about product tactics and what makes us better at products, although I think that is important. But think about like um, books that give you divergent thinking where it it's more philosophical and helps us apply big ideas and then convergent thinking so that, you know, but then we read frameworks and like how to apply it. So in the radical uh, one book, I will shamelessly promote radical product thinking. I wrote it really with this perspective of divergent and convergent thinking where we're thinking about product as a philosophy. That's really a large part of the book, thinking about it as a philosophy for creating change in the world using our products. And then there's the convergent aspect where it helps you think about frameworks that you can actually apply in terms of practical um, problem solving to our own products. So Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. But I'll share a few other books that I find deeply inspirational and help us think differently about products. Uh, one is called The Tyranny of Meritocracy. It talks mm -hmm. about meritocracy in this world as if, um, and, and explains why the concept of meritocracy is actually flawed um, and what we need in our society so that we create a world that works for all. 
Another book I love is Invisible Women. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it talks about, you know, how the world isn't always designed for everyone. Uh, And especially in this case, it talks about women and how it's not designed for women. The third book I read recently uh, that I really love is um, Excellent Sheep. Um, It talks about how we're creating a generation of people um, who often don't think for themselves, but, you know, uh, are trained to think in a certain way. Um, And it also talks about meritocracy, not in a positive light, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And one other book that I'll mention that I thought was really interesting uh, was a book written by Edward Snowden. Um, I can't remember the name of the book. It'll come to me in a minute. But the book really emphasizes the problem with privacy and why we so desperately need privacy in this world. Um, And that privacy is important for democracy. So very often our products erode privacy um, and why that's important to not do. Yes. Very interesting. And this, this uh, privacy book will link to our next conversation. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, uh, while we're at it, there's also one fiction book I'll mention, uh, which also relates to privacy. It is called uh, Attack Surface by Cory mm-hmm. Doctorow. Uh, and that also talks about privacy and um, how that affects democracy. Uh, another great read from a fictional perspective, but that put together with Edward Snowden, if that doesn't give you religion, <laughs> I don't know what will. <laughs> Good. And uh, where can people find your your, your work? Uh, so people can look up the Radical Product Thinking book online. You can look at the website, radicalproduct.com, which um, has my blog posts that uh, try to make us think. And um, it also has the free toolkit there that you can download that talks about vision, strategy, etc. cetera. Uh, and lastly, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love hearing from people about what inspired them about Radical Product Thinking and how they're applying this approach. Um, to create change in whatever way inspires them. Yes. Well, it was a great conversation, Radhika. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on this. Always such a pleasure to talk to you, Margarita. <laughs>